Thin Air is an independently produced podcast by Daniel Calderon and Jordan Sims. Each episode focuses on an unsolved missing persons case from around the world. You can follow us on Twitter at Thin Air Podcast, like us on Facebook, or visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. This episode of Thin Air is brought to you by Blue Apron. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash thinair. You will love getting fresh ingredients delivered right to your door. Redeem your three free meal offer today by going to blueapron.com slash thinair. When Jordan and I started this podcast a little over a year ago, We didn't imagine our episodes taking on a particular theme or attempting to accomplish a specific objective. However, as we've released now 16 episodes, we've come to recognize a common element among many of the cases we've reported on. Inevitably, the longer a case remains unsolved, the less attention it receives from authorities. This makes sense to me. Trails go cold, evidence gets destroyed, people's versions of events get foggier and more muddled. However, it seems as if there is a particular group of marginalized people whose cases go cold from the beginning, but of whom are all around us. In 2015, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development announced that, on a national scale, homelessness was down by 2%, but in larger cities like New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, there were dramatic increases in their homeless populations. The Housing and Urban Development reports that homelessness increased in Los Angeles alone by 20%. That's around 41,000 people who have, in many ways, become disconnected from their homes, their family, and their friends. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services defines homelessness as, quote, an individual who lacks housing, including an individual whose primary residence during the night is a supervised public or private facility that provides temporary living accommodations and an individual who is a resident in transitional housing, end quote. What's important to note here is that the definition of being homeless includes people who stay at shelters or live in temporary housing. Unless an individual has a permanent, stable living environment, they are considered homeless. There are a lot of reasons why someone might become homeless. I can't even begin to speculate on the possibilities. But one of the reasons Jordan and I have noticed since creating this podcast is the connection between missing homeless people and mental illness. We've seen this in a few episodes of our show now, where an individual suffering from a mental illness ends up missing and they are presumed to be homeless and living on the streets, either too ashamed to come home or unaware of who they are and where their home even is. According to the most recent data, albeit a few years old now, somewhere between a fifth and a quarter of the national homeless population suffers from a severe form of mental illness, things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and extreme forms of depression. When a person with a mental disorder ends up homeless, it compounds their situation. They no longer have access to some of the most vital networks in society, including regular access to physical and mental health services. Without consistent medical treatment, an extremely vulnerable group of individuals in our society, the mentally ill, become twice as vulnerable, not to mention invisible, when they become homeless. 
As I was doing research and conducting interviews for this episode, I began to wonder how many people within the homeless community are actually missing people too. I started doing some preliminary research on the subject, and while the data is limited and mostly anecdotal, it is alarmingly high. Hi, I'm looking for an old man that I married, the last man of my life, and he's a great guy. He's an ex-cook. His name is Donald Rex Bell. Um, I hope he's okay and doing well. I'm looking for my son. Uh, seven years, we're married. Mom, I love you and I miss you and I need to see you. When's the last time you saw Mary? About 10 years, maybe longer. Okay. My boss died and uh, left me without a job and my wife passed, so my mom never got to meet him. Hi, Rebecca. It's Daddy. Uh, I, I, I wanted to, to uh, renew a context, uh, contact with you and I, I, I don't know how to do that, so this young lady is going to help me. And uh, I knew that I, maybe somebody like you guys could maybe help me out a little bit because I'm an alcoholic and I got a problem and I don't, know, I don't know how to fix it. I don't know what to do. I haven't talked to my family in forever and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just worried that they hate me. This past December 2016, a man by the name of Kevin Adler founded a nonprofit organization in San Francisco called Miracle Messages. His goal was to collect messages from homeless people around San Francisco and use those messages to help reconnect the homeless with their loved ones. In some cases, his organization has helped homeless people in San Francisco reunite with friends and family they haven't spoken to in over a decade. Miracle Message's hope is that by reconnecting homeless people with their friends and families, it will provide the individual with a solid foundation moving forward. This episode of Thin Air will feature two very similar stories of mothers who were victims of their own mental instability and, as a result, left behind their children for a life on the streets. My name is Robin Burton, and Claudia Leslie Wells is my mother, who is missing. My mom is paranoid schizophrenic, and she was in out of my life all my life. She would come home for a couple months, and she'd be gone for a year or two. And every time she would leave, she would leave with her clothes on her back, leaving everything behind. As a child, my grandparents raised me, and they they never told me about her illness. Um, they hid that from me, so. I always thought that my mom was living the life of the rich and famous, and she just didn't have time for me. I had no idea that my mom was mentally ill, and back back then, they kind of pushed that underneath the carpet because I don't even think they knew how to deal with it. Whenever I first found out about my mom's mental illness, I was 34. My mom actually went missing when I was 23, um, and I was very angry at first, um, wanting to know why my grandparents didn't tell me, why they didn't educate me, and I finally have realized that it's gonna, it, you can't educate someone that whenever you're not educated yourself. And Christmas of 1994, um, I was married. I had come home for Christmas. Um, Christmas was the last time I've seen my mom. She was living with my grandmother um, in Maryville, Illinois. And in January, about two weeks later, in January of 95, um, she just said that she was going to go up to the post office. And she walked up to the post office, and she was never seen again. That year of 1995 was an especially painful year for Robin. Her grandmother, Claudia's mother, who Robin had lived with most of her life, had fallen and broken her hip. 
She was old and needed constant care, something Claudia was insistent she could provide. I'd come home for Christmas, and whenever whenever I got back home, I called my mom on the phone, and I told her, I said, I want to let you know that I love you, and I think that what you're doing um, for Grandma is great and phenomenal, and I know it's a lot of work, um, but, if, but she has to have 24-hour care. And if you decide to leave, you just have to promise me that you'll call me. You don't have to tell me where you're going. I just need to know that you're leaving because you cannot leave her there by yourself. If you leave her and you don't come back and you don't call me, I, I, I will never speak to you again. I've never, ever said that to my mom in my whole life. And I lost both moms within six weeks of each other. My mom disappeared January of 1995, and my grandmother, who raised me, passed away um, the beginning of March of 95. Was she able to care for your grandma? Oh, yeah, she did a great job with her. She did a great job. Um, I think that there might have been times that she was on medication. I, I just don't ever remember her taking any medicine. Back years ago, they did shock treatment. We know now that was bad. Um, but years ago, she would come home. And she would go in the hospital and have shock treatment done. And that was all hidden from me. I didn't know any of this. It was my mom's sister that sent me down and told me. I just, I had no idea. As Robin started to share with me the details of her mother's case, her mother's mental instability, her habitual homelessness, she also recommended that I contact another woman, Brandy Chapman, whose story eerily echoes Robin's. Her mother, Shelley Jennings, went missing in 1993, only a few years before Claudia. Here's Brandy. She was very loving. She was very loving, but she she had vices, and um, she would, you know, she used drugs and she drank. So she would leave, and she would leave us, and I, I'm not going to say it, unsafe places, because she would leave us with safe people, but she'd leave for two and three days at a time, um, and then come back and get us. And, I mean, I loved my mom. It, it was hard as a child, though, worrying about my sisters when I would go stay with my dad. Um, but she was a great, I mean, she was very loving, and I knew that she loved us. That wasn't a question. She just, she had a very, very rough childhood. Brandy went on to explain to me the type of childhood her mother, Shelley, experienced growing up. I know that her mom was in a car wreck, and she was killed at, a, my mom was probably, I don't know, five, four or five. Um, her dad died. She, she had a brother die on a car or in a motorcycle crash. Um, she had me when she was 15 years old. She, you know, just basically none of her family wanted her. Like after her mom died, her dad didn't want her. So he sent her to live with my grandma. Um, I think she just kind of felt like, you know, nobody wanted her. And then the multiple um, abusive men. In 1993, in the middle of a custody battle with Brandy's father, her mother, Shelley, leaves Oklahoma for California with her two other daughters, Brandy's half-sisters. Shortly after moving to California, Shelley drops her two daughters off at school and never returns to pick them up. My dad decided to sue for custody of me because my mom had custody. And um, when you ask my sister about it, she thinks, that my mom was having an episode because she just up and moved to California with them. Um, I think they were probably up there for about a year, maybe. Um, and my mom didn't pick them up from school one day. She took them and she never picked them up. 
they eventually called DHS and they removed them from the home. And my sister told me recently that she remembers seeing my mom one more time. Their dad came and picked them up. Their dad was from Oklahoma also. And he came and picked them up and they got to see my mom one more time and she was in a mental hospital. That left 12-year-old Brandy motherless with no idea of whatever became of her mother. We can assume she was eventually released from the mental hospital, but given her mother's mental state and law enforcement's lack of concern regarding quote-unquote missing homeless people, Shelley's case never went anywhere. For both Robin and Brandy, they felt the primary reason for their mother's homelessness was their mental illness. I've been told by family members... Robin, maybe if you quit putting down that she's mentally ill, she'll come back home. Um, but that's the problem. The problem is is that mental illness is thrown under the rug. It's like it's not supposed to be talked about. Um, you're not supposed to say anything about it. And, and I'm going to be their voice now because I am going to say something. She's mentally ill. There's nothing wrong with being mentally ill. After leaving home in 1995, Robin's mother remained off the radar. That is, until three years later in 1998, when, coincidentally, a missing persons report for Leslie Wells, one of Claudia's aliases, is issued in San Diego, California. Because of the distance and the alias used, Robin didn't even learn about this report for over a decade. Three years later, she resurfaced in San Diego, California, um, at a homeless shelter at the time we didn't know this. She had flip-flopped her name. She went in the shelter under Leslie C. Wells. She did put me down as an emergency contact as her daughter, but she put me down living overseas. She told them that she was going to the VA because she had a heart condition, and she never made it to the VA. I don't believe that she was ever going to the VA because my mom's not a veteran. The lady at the shelter reported her missing. I didn't find out about her being missing from San Diego until 2000. What, say 2009, 2010? The last confirmed sighting of Claudia, a.k.a. Leslie Wells, was the day she left the San Diego shelter to supposedly pick up some heart medication from the VA. While it's true that Claudia does suffer from a heart condition that requires medication, it isn't true that she was a veteran. Despite the filed missing persons report, law enforcement did little to aid in an effort to find Claudia. So, for many years, Robin waited, hoping that her mother would pop back into her life like she had done so many times when she was a child. I believe my mother married a man to give me a last name. It was not my real father. I think that they were seeing signs of mental illness back then. His, his son was wanting to adopt me, and I think that my mom got scared. She did what she thought was best for me, and she went to her, her mom and dad's house, and she begged them, to adopt me. My grandfather told her that if she ever straightened up, she could have me back. Once I was in my grandparents' care, she started leaving, and she was in and out of my life my whole entire life. And what was it like for you in those moments where, okay, your mom's gone for four years, and then she shows up all of a sudden? Was it a moment of elation, or was it a moment of anger or sadness, or, or what was that like as a child? I was, I was very angry. Of course, I never told her that I was angry. You know, I kept all those feelings inside. 
Um, but I was, I was very angry. I remember thinking, well, she's just going to leave again. And everybody would say, you know, you need to give her a chance. She's really straightening up. And I was the only one that was angry. I was mad. And I was just like, you know what? You believe what you want, but I know she's going to leave again. And when she would leave again, it was just like, I told you she was going to leave. So I think that I put that wall up because, and I wouldn't let her in because I just knew that she was going to leave again. And, and she did every single time. And so as a child, I kind of protected myself from that. So what would she say when she returned? I mean, you know, this is actually crazy when I tell you this. Um, before she would come home, she would she would call um, or she'd send presents. Um, and then it was just like she never left. She'd call, hey, what are you guys doing? How you doing? You know, it was just like that, like like she was never gone. Did that make you even more angry? Oh, absolutely it did. Yeah, absolutely it made me more angry. Um, And like I said, I thought that my mom was living a life of the rich and famous. Like Robin, Brandy had experienced the same things growing up. A mother who had left for days, weeks, months on end, popping into her life when her mental stability allowed her to. I wanted to know if Brandy experienced the same kind of anger that Robin described. I'm curious to know like, how your perceptions of your mom changed from when she was with you until after she disappeared. Um, I was talking to Robin last week, and when her mom disappeared, she got really angry, and she sort of went through an angry phase. And I'm sort of curious what experience that was like for you. Well, I'd, I've never been angry at her. I've, I've never been angry. Um, something just always told me that something wasn't right. I mean... Like I said before, I have a huge heart. It gets me in trouble all the time because I have such a huge heart. And I know that I, where I got that from, and it's her. And I know I I knew that she would just never leave her kids. I knew that wasn't the case. Um, I can't tell you what I thought because, I mean, I would think different things. I just didn't know. I didn't know if somebody had murdered her and, and knew that her body hadn't been found and was using her name. I didn't know what was going on. The disappearance of her mother was especially challenging for Brandy. Being only 12 at the time, there wasn't much she could do to pressure law enforcement or aid in her own efforts. Brandy had to wait until she became an adult before she could officially begin the search for her missing mother. As a child, there was really nothing we could do besides call the numbers over and over and over again, asking the people if they've seen our mom. Um, Since since I've been able to use a computer, since I've been able to do anything, I've always looked. Um, and I've always had friends helping me. What kind of things would you guys do to look for her? Well, I would just get on Google and Google her name. I would find places that she had been, but it would be most of the time like a year or two before that. So you said you actually you Googled her and you found stuff about her. Yes, yes. Even though it was late, what sort of stuff did you find? She would be in jail in this place or this place or this place. Most of her charges would be like camping in a, a place where you can't camp or um, public in talks. You know, I would call and try to get the records. We could never get a mug shot. It seemed like everybody else in this world took mug shots, but she never had a mug shot. While Brandy was chasing down a string of arrests connected to her mother's case, Robin wasn't getting any leads about where her mom could be or if she was even alive. That is until 2014 when the Los Angeles Times prints a news article about homelessness on Skid Row. After the break, Robin receives an astonishing piece of evidence that her mother is still alive and might be in Southern California. 
I opened it up, and it was from the L.A. Times, where they had did a write-up on the homeless, um, the homeless count, and it was a February 2014 article. They took one picture, they put one picture on that paper, and it was of my mom. On our last episode, I ordered my first week of meals from Blue Apron. Now, I've never used this service before, so I was really excited to see what it had to offer. All three of my meals for the week arrived in one shipment as scheduled. Now, personally, I'm always impressed by companies that have smart packaging and design, and Blue Apron certainly has both of those. All the ingredients are labeled and already portioned out for you, which is amazing in its own right. The recipes are printed on durable cardstock. I saved mine because there's no reason you can't use these recipes again in the future. And they feature step-by-step instructions with visual aids. I made my first meal, which was seared chicken and pearl couscous, and it was everything I imagined a delicious home-cooked meal to be. Between teaching full-time and producing this podcast, most hours of my days are already booked. Forget about grocery shopping, let alone taking the time to even think about what I want to make for dinner. Blue Apron solves both of those problems for me. They allow me to quickly select the meals I want delivered, they do the shopping and curating of fresh ingredients, and I get them delivered to my door ready to cook. I can say that Blue Apron's meal home delivery service might actually cultivate a love within me for the culinary arts. In fact, shortly before recording this, I officially became a paid subscriber to Blue Apron. I honestly believe this service will change the way I think about eating and cooking. If you'd like to try out Blue Apron alongside me, please go to blueapron.com slash thinair to get a week's worth of food for free with free shipping. That's three meals you're getting totally free. Again, the website is blueapron.com slash thinair. If you've ordered Blue Apron through our sponsorship with them, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at thinairpodcast at gmail.com and tell us about your experience. We might even feature you in an upcoming episode. Now, back to the show. Nearly 15 years after Robin's mom, Claudia, is reported missing in San Diego, California, new photographic evidence of her mother appears in a newspaper article published by the Los Angeles Times about homelessness on Skid Row. Here's Robin again. In 2014, December of 2014, I got a call from uh, my private investigator and he said, Robin, I don't know how we missed this. But your mom's social security number was used at a homeless shelter in Santa Monica, California. I got off the phone. I didn't put anything on social media. Um, I've been on wild goose chases before. Two days later, he calls me on the phone and he said, Robin, I need your email address. There's something that you need to look at. Um, I gave him my email address. Um, He sent me an attachment. I opened it up and it was a, um, it was from the LA Times where they had did a write-up on the homeless, um, the homeless count. And it was a February 2014 article. They they took one picture. They put one picture on that paper, and it was of my mom. The name underneath it said Diane Madago. Um, I have a very good friend of mine that uh, is in law enforcement, and there was there is one Diane Madago that is transit in California. Um, he ran her for me. I got her picture, and it was not the same picture 
that was in the LA Times, which I already knew. I just I just knew it was my mom. Some people thought it was her. Some people thought it was not her. And then it wasn't until Monday I finally got to talk to the photographer. And even though the article was a February 2014 article, and even though the article said Skid Row, which is in Los Angeles, that actual photograph was taken in 2013 um, in Santa Monica, California, the exact same place and year that my mom's uh, social security number was used, and that was all the confirmation I needed because I already knew it was her. What do you think it is about the picture that gives you such a strong feeling that you know? Her eyes. Your eyes don't change. It's her eyes. Why don't your other family members think it's her? Because they think that the lady looks too old. Life on the streets is hard on people. And I don't think that they they want to believe in. The last time they seen her, she looked a lot different. Um, but they look a lot different now, too. And so, you know, in the life on the streets ages a person dramatically, and, and they just don't realize. Despite the contention over the photograph and the debate over the name Diane Medago, which was printed underneath the image, Robin raises enough money to fund a trip to California to search for her mother. Whenever that photo found me in December, I raised enough money, and me and Stephanie Copeland from Media of the Missing, um, we drove out to California to stay for three weeks. Whenever it hit the news and CNN was following me around on Skid Row, and I knew immediately that a lot of our missing were actually living homeless. Been to California several times since then, searching our homeless communities, and I cannot find her. There's people out there that know her. Um, They say that they travel up and down the coast, that she's out there somewhere. Once Robin made it to California, she discovered that HIPAA laws federal laws enacted to protect the privacy of your health, restricted her from obtaining critical information from hospitals and homeless shelters relating to her mother's possible location. This frustration from family and friends isn't new for our podcast. We've heard it in quite a few cases, most notably in episode 10, the case of Renee Lamana, a woman whose sister also believes she is amongst the mentally ill homeless population of New York City. And the reason that it's so important for me to find my mom, um, our HIPAA laws hinder so many families from finding their loved ones. I can walk into a shelter with my mom's flyer, even though she's illegally missing, they cannot tell me that she's there. They, they will, however, let me walk around like the day room and stuff. I can't go back into the bedrooms or anything like that, but I can walk around the day room and stuff to see if I see her, but they cannot tell me if she is there or not. Um, if, she, if she goes into a hospital, they cannot tell me if she's there or not. It's our HIPAA laws, and I get... And sometimes I get aggravated because people just don't know. And they're like, have you checked the nursing homes? Have you checked this? Have you checked that? Yes, but they won't tell me anything because of our HIPAA laws. It's our Privacy Act. Robin left Southern California without her mother. She was angered by the HIPAA laws, but motivated to make a difference for those in similar situations. I came home um, March of 2015. And I started a foundation called Missing Homeless. Um, Whenever we started Missing Homeless, I had no idea at the time how phenomenal it was going to be. And we have found over 40-something people throughout the United States living homeless. Uh, I also do street outreach here in St. Louis. And I started doing something different out there. Um, I get out on the streets, and 
and I tell them, I said, if there's anybody that you want to find, I don't care if it's a family member or a classmate, please come to me um, when we're done serving and let me see if I can help you. Um, so far, we've had six people um, come come forward in our homeless community wanting to find their families, and we have found five out of the six. And it's just, it's been, it's been really, really great. One of those people Robin wanted to help reunite with their family members was Brandy, whose mother, Shelly, had pinged on a couple of arrests in or around Redding, California in 2016. When she called to confirm her mother's identity with local shelters, they couldn't give her any information because of federal HIPAA laws. I had never been that close. For two days, I called and begged people at the shelters and just begging them, listen, I understand that you, you know, there's laws that you have to go by, but this is my mom, and she's been missing for 23 years, and I'm worried about her. I don't, there's something not right, and they just couldn't tell me. They would say, well, you know, you can come up here. You're welcome to come up here and walk around, and I'm like, well, I'm only 1,800 miles away from you, but okay. Feeling closer to finding her mom than ever before, Brandy's community rallies behind her and funds a trip for her to travel to California to search for her mom herself. The first place Brandy goes looking for answers is the jail. I went straight to the jail to try to get her mugshot, and they wouldn't give it to me. Um, immediately, I felt defeated because, you know, I didn't know what she looked like now. I didn't. I had no clue. Um, so I think I went outside and I was really frustrated. Um, I was walking up to, you know, any homeless person I seen that was walking by, and I, I guess they could tell that I was frustrated, and maybe they could hear it my voice. And I was crying, and I would show, you know, just asking them if they'd seen her. So were you ever able to find your mom? Nothing. You know, a bunch of people had seen her. A guy had even seen her. Um, he got a hold of me, and he said that he was getting fingerprinted for a job at the um, sheriff's department and she had came in there and she was accusing the sheriff's department of taking her backpack when they arrested her and not giving it back to her. Um, he told me that whatever was in her backpack was very important. He could just see it in her face and the way she was acting that, you know, she looked like she had just lost everything. Your mother's case came to our attention because we were researching Claudia Wells uh, and her daughter, Robin, got us in contact with you. And hearing you tell the story to me, your two stories are, are very similar. What was your, What's your connection to Robin, and what have you guys done together? I went home after going to Reading, and I got home, and I just started, you know, just feeling defeated. And then one day I just started getting messages from Robin's team. And, I mean, it was just a whole team of people, and I was just like, yes, maybe, maybe I still do have some hope. So... Um, they set her up a Facebook page. They um, made her a missing flyer, and um, and then they searched for her also. Um, and then me and Robin just stayed in contact. So she just kind of helped me out and was there for me throughout the whole thing. Shelly Jane's story is just so crazy because it reminds me so much of my mom. Both women have been missing over two decades. Pictures are found by both of their daughters after two decades, and both of them living homeless in California. The, the story was just very bizarre to me. It was just, it brought back a lot of memories. And me and her became very good friends. We decided that me and her were going to go to California together. We actually had a flyer made up with both of their pictures on it, and we were going to get media coverage. We were, gonna, we were going for two months. And we were we both were taking leaves of absence from work, and we were going to go start at one end of California and go to the other. I was 
on the phone talking to Brandy about the things that we were going to do. And she was on the phone with me and she said, she said, let me call you right back. And I got off the phone with her uh, about 15, 20 minutes later. She calls me back and she said, oh my God, Robin, she's just been found. even remember the man's name and I do plan on getting a hold of them I have talked to him once but he said he was in Sacramento at the bus station and he said he seen this lady and he kept staring at her because he knew he knew her from somewhere he just couldn't think of where it was and um he said he just kept staring at her trying to figure it out because he knew it was something and he said she looked at him and seen him staring so she just started acting a little crazy and he was like automatically I knew (laughs) and so he called the police at the Modesto Police Department, and I don't know how he got a hold of them like this, because when I call, I have to wait two or three hours for him to call me back. So um, he said he called them, and I guess the officer that he got in touch with um, called the bus station to verify it was her, and when she stepped off the bus, he was standing there. And he just approached her and was like, hey, are you... He said, Suzanne Jennings, and she said yes, and he said, your daughter's looking for you. And then, after two decades, Brandy finally gets the call from her mother that she's been waiting for. The phone rang, and it was um, the Modesto Police Department. And she just said, you know, that she understood that I had a missing persons report out on my mom. And I said yes, and she said, well, she's standing right here beside me. Oh, God, I can't tell you how I felt. I mean, the emotions, I was screaming. When they put her on the phone, I was screaming. I I wouldn't let her get off the phone, and at the same time, I was messaging um, people to ask them to go get her and take her to my cousin's house. Unable to finance another trip out to California at such short notice, Brandy decides to drive from Oklahoma to California. When she arrives in Modesto, she reunites with her mom after not seeing her for over 20 years. They hold each other tightly, not letting go, crying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for being shot, Mary. Oh, love you. Thank you for... We do know you will see no evil. I'm here, no evil. I love you with all my heart, mind, and soul. So, where's your mom now? She's at my house. So she stays with you now in Oklahoma? Yes, yes. And how has that experience been for you? Um, well, I mean, it's great, and I love having my mom. Um, she, I'm just being honest, she drinks constantly, and so her medication isn't going to help her because it's definitely going to counteract her medication, so she's going to have to get help, and I think that her plan is to drink the rest of her life, and, and that's not going to work. But I, otherwise, I love having her there. Um, we laugh a lot, and then we cry a lot, and then we've even screamed a little bit. Um, but it's going to work out. I just want to I just want to take care of her and, you know, show her that there are people there that love her and love her no matter what. I mean, to be out there alone for 23 years without unconditional love or your children or anything like that. I just can't imagine. 
Despite the happy ending in Brandy's case, Robin is still searching for her mother, a three-year-old picture her last remnant of hope. Robin hopes that by helping others, she will eventually be helped herself. What is that experience like for you to be looking for your mom, yet be helping other people find their loved ones? Very emotional. Um, I, I get very emotional and sometimes, you know, I, I talk to the families and then I get off the phone and I just cry. Um, but at the same time, I'm happy because it's, it gives all of us hope. You know, I'm, I don't regret doing anything that I'm doing. If I could do it all over again, I would do it the exact same way and probably start missing the homeless a lot sooner. But it, 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 it's, it's very emotional, but at the same time, it's very rewarding because I just found this family. And I remember being very angry at God. You know, you sent me a photo after 20 years and I go to California and I can't find her. There's a reason for everything. And I don't understand this reason. And I understand the reason now. I went out there because I was supposed to start missing the homeless. He wanted me to see firsthand what, what was going on out there and these people that were lost out there. The only thing that I want to say to uh, the viewers out there that's listening is don't give up on your loved ones. Don't ever, ever give up, no matter how hard it is. Sometimes I know we, we think about throwing in the towel, but they're lost. They're lost out there, and we need the public to open their eyes to the homeless because our missing are out there. Our missing are out there, and they can be found. Since returning home, Shelly has tried to leave twice, but Brandy is working her best to get her the treatment she needs to overcome her addiction and mental health issues. Claudia Wells still remains missing. If you have any information, please feel free to contact the Missing and Homeless Facebook page or find further contact information via our website at www.thinairpodcast.com. We would like to thank Robin Burton and Brandy Chapman for sharing their stories with us for this episode. We'd also like to thank the Missing and Homeless organization as well as Miracle Messages for all the work they do trying to reconnect the homeless with their families. For more information on how to donate to these organizations, please visit our website at www.thinairpodcast.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank Nate Halda, our assistant producer, for all the work he put into making this episode happen. This week's music was provided by Chris Zabriskie and a good friend of ours. For Chris Zabriskie's full catalog of music, go to www.chriszabriskie.com. We'll return in two weeks. Mm-hmm.